You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their mistakes and wrong turns, but more importantly, about how they moved on and up to keep building beautiful lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. Hello, pluckies. Welcome to season three of Plucking Up. We have taken a several week break between season two and season three. And I must say that the timing of this break really worked out well because both my producer and I casually on our break had very cute babies. I also, on our break, you know, almost low-key died of COVID while giving birth. So it's taken me a couple weeks to get back on my feet. I say that kind of casually and joking, which is not very accurate assessment of the situation. If you want to hear more about that experience, you can actually listen to the bonus episode that Ben and I recorded where we just sat down a couple weeks after this whole shindig and kind of just shared about our harrowing birth slash COVID tale and kind of the two sides of what we both remembered from it. Anyway, it was really beautiful experience for us to just have that. But that being said, I have really missed creating some of our more regular content, which is these shows for you. And I have really missed hearing about how our incredible guests are inspiring and encouraging you in your own remarkable lives. So, of course, you know, or maybe you don't know, maybe you're new to the Plucking Up community here in season three. But over the last two seasons and now coming into this third season, we have just had some incredible voices on the show come on and not share just their like PR highlight reel with us, right? But instead really dive into some of their personal and professional pluckups, okay? So from Academy Award-winning Matthew McConaughey, who shared with us how he majorly plucked up a big acting job to Ariana Huffington sharing about her serious case of imposter syndrome to Liz Gilbert on overcoming shame. So many amazing voices that are encouraging and reminding us that we're all humans and we all pluck up and helping us understand how they felt in the moment. So we know that when we feel that same way, we're not alone, but also how they ultimately moved through those really, really difficult seasons. Well, our next guest, Jeffrey Hollander, has one of those stories that's going to touch on both some personal and career crises that had some pretty rippling effects throughout his life. Jeffrey is the co-founder and former CEO of 7th Generation, a massively successful natural product brand. I don't know about you, but 7th Generation is in my bathroom and under my sink, and I'm very familiar with it. Um, You may have seen their eco-friendly diapers. They've got detergents and cleansers, and they're on grocery shelves literally everywhere across America. Jeffrey is also an adjunct professor of sustainability and social entrepreneurship at the Stern Business School at New York University. So you're, of course, going to hear bits and pieces of Jeff's wild success, 
But man, y'all, you are also going to hear about some visceral and honestly, oftentimes painful and kind of chaotic moments from Jeff's four decade career uh, that he was really generous in sharing with us. You know, we're going to talk about how Jeff, oh, got arrested more than once. (laughs) We're going to talk about, to be completely honest, some pretty cringeworthy things like this course that he taught in his early days called How to Marry Money. Yes, yes, How to Marry Money. And then we're going to talk about his most expensive and honestly probably painful mistake of getting fired from Seventh Generation. Yes, the company that he started and grew for 20 years. Oh, y'all, just ouch. So much pain. But here's the thing. We also, because he's willing to share about that pain with us, we also get to learn from Jeffrey about just evolution, like growing as a human, as well as how he maintained a sense of pluck during some really, really challenging times in his life. So without further ado, Jeffrey Hollander. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us here on the Plucking Up podcast. I was so excited to see your name come across our schedule, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about your story today. Thanks, Liz. I'm thrilled to be here and look forward to it as well. So tell us a little bit about the Jeffrey story, the memoir, as far back as you're willing to take us, kind of just like the highlights of where you grew up, who you were as a kid. If there's anything about like your childhood that as you look, of course, now in retrospect with what kind of made you come alive that could have been maybe some foreshadowing into the career ahead of you, we'd love to hear about it. Sure. Happy to do that. I was born and raised in New York City. Okay. Grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Wow. So like in the city city. Oh, I was born in Manhattan. Wow. And uh, lived there till I was 17. Okay. When I moved to California because I was obsessed with surfing and I wanted to be someplace I could surf all the time. And believe it or not, at 17, I didn't have a lot of money. So <laughs> I ended up living in my car okay. in a parking lot by the beach uh, where I could go surfing all the time. And what part of California were you in? Santa Barbara. I actually re- have this distinct memory. My husband and I, we actually also lived out of our car for a season and we passed through Santa Barbara. And I remember thinking like of all of the places to not have a home and to live out of your car, Santa Barbara is not a bad place. It's a beautiful place to be. And I had a interesting year, applied to college because I was going to high school and I was a senior from my car, which impressed the colleges that I was that industrious, that living in my car, I would still fill out the application. Unfortunately, I failed at college. Okay. Uh, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> Nailed the application, failed when you actually got in. <laughs> yes. Well, I lasted about a year and a half. Okay. Uh, not that I didn't love learning, but I just didn't love being a full-time student. And okay. ironically, moved to Toronto, Canada, where my girlfriend was going to the University of Toronto and started my, really my second business called the Skills Exchange of Toronto. And ironically, for someone who was a college dropout, I started a continuing education program where I found fascinating people just like you, who may not be professional teachers, but who taught courses that they were 
interested in in their homes and their offices. Interesting. And uh, we had hundreds and hundreds of people teaching everything from how to make sushi to alternative diabetes care to an introduction to Marxism. Wow. Uh, so it was kind of like the original, it sounds like maybe the original master class, but more accessible to like, you don't actually have to be a famous master. You don't have to be a famous master. Mm. And the courses cost, I think, $15 back in uh, 1976. Wow. And of course, I'm guessing they were in person. Absolutely. Everything was in person. Okay. And uh, that did quite well. And it was very much focused on what we would consider sort of socially responsible type topics. Okay. But then got arrested because I didn't have working papers, got thrown out of Canada oh. and ended up back in New York and uh, started another uh, skills exchange called Network for Learning. Okay, wait, just hold up real quick. So you lost your business when you got arrested and thrown out of Canada? You just, yes. because it was all local and it was based in Toronto, it was just like, bye-bye. Couldn't take it with me. And like, was mistake, it a dramatic mistake. arrest? Like, were you literally at work one day and the cop showed up and handcuffed you? Or like, t tell us a little bit about what okay. it's like to just get arrested in the middle of a work week and thrown out of a country. The Royal Mounted Police, not on horseback, by the way, showed up at my office door and they did handcuff me, arrest me and throw me in jail. But they're uh, Canadian, so I bet they were kind of nice about it, right? They were very polite. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very nice sell, but uh, did get arrested, was thrown out of the country, <clears throat> came back to New York and started a very similar business called Network for Learning. Okay. But my uh, father was was not so into this socially responsible business thing and wanted me to do something that was much more commercial. So we offered a very, very different type of class. We had classes on how to get married to someone who has money. We had classes on the art of flirting. We had classes on how to lose your Brooklyn accent or what to do in August when your therapist is away on vacation. And it was very, very successful, uh, but not quite politically responsible. Okay, so... Where did your desire, so with your first company, embedding kind of social responsibility, which, by the way, you said this was in the 70s? Yes, in, in the late so, 70s. There was obviously people out there, you know, like the original, like the Patagonias and the Ben and Jerry's and the kind of grandfathers of the socially responsible business community that had already you know, started this. It's been around, but it wasn't as ubiquitous and frankly, as expected in a lot of ways, obviously, as it is in 2021. What was it about you, your story, your passion? Like what made you say, hey, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to teach courses and create this company, I want it to be something that ultimately makes the world a better place versus just earns us a buck. Well, you know, I ended up on the Phil Donahue show promoting this course called How to Marry Money and got attacked by the crowd for doing something that was bad and unethical. And it was really a moment of personal crisis. I mm. felt terrible about what I was doing. And I committed myself to sort of get back on the right track uh, because I really had made a bad detour. Even wow. though the business was very successful and we sold the company that ultimately went on to create books on tape of the courses sold the company to Warner Communications. All the investors did well. 
But I left the company to sort of figure out how to get my life back on track. And I wrote my first book called How to Make the World a Better Place, A Beginner's Guide, which was really my exploration of what to do with the rest of my life to do something that made the world a better place and was really meaningful. Mm, So you experienced in a very visceral, acute way when your business and what you're creating in the world doesn't align with what you actually believe and want for the world and the kind of lack of alignment or like integrity in who you are and your values and what you're actually out there creating in the world. Tell us a little bit about like the emotions that you felt. So you go on this talk show, I'm guessing, I'm totally guessing, but you go on this talk show and you're excited to kind of share your business and, you know, talk about this course. And then it does not get the response that you're hoping for. And you talked about kind of having a personal crisis. Tell us a little bit about like, what did it feel like when you went home that night? And when you were like, what am I doing with my life? Like, I don't, I can't stand up for this. I can't stand behind this. I don't believe in this. Walk us through that a little bit. It was hard. It was it was quite painful because I had become something that I really didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. I was doing something that didn't align with my personal values and I felt embarrassed. I mm. felt sad and I was like, "Oh my god, you know, I had investors, I had a business, I had, you know, over 100 employees. How do I get out of this?" And uh it was really a moment of of personal crisis in a different way than getting thrown in jail was. Uh, That was much more straightforward and less complicated. This was really brought me to a sense of personal reckoning with myself. And happily, I got myself back on course through writing this book and ultimately starting Seventh Generation. But boy, did I veer off the path that I knew I was supposed to be on. You know, one of the things that I've really loved about this show and interviewing, you know, guests who share these like more difficult seasons with us is one common thread that seems to come up is really the power of the experience of making a mistake or having gone in the wrong direction, feeling a way about it, you know, feeling embarrassed or like you don't have integrity or questioning yourself or, you know, and the the visceral experience of that negative emotion actually being something that really motivates you to make a change, to say like, I've now experienced what that feels like to, for you, you know, to not be in alignment or feel like you have integrity in your work and then really orienting your life around like, I don't want to feel that way again. I've, I'm familiar and it is a cost and I want to change and go in, in a different direction and make a different decision. You always need to make small course corrections. In your daily life, you're going to find that you weren't as honest as you need to be or you didn't share something that was important for you to share. So life is full of making those shorter term corrections. But this was Mm -hmm. a big one. This was, I need to basically start all over again with a new business, a new life. And it was hard. You know, my life has had many peaks and valleys. And in one way, that makes it interesting. But the valleys, when they're deep like that, are, are, as I said, quite painful. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the next season. How did you go from that of like, okay, I'm teaching how to marry money 
to founding Seventh Generation and running what I would say, you know, is one of the social enterprises that I remember earliest as being a social entrepreneur myself, kind of coming from a different um, generation, no pun intended, um, of kind of really having a stated and obvious kind of social perspective baked into the actual product line and product use. Tell me a little bit about that. How did it come about? How did you figure out how to embed this value that you cared about into an actual commercial enterprise? Well, I realized that, you know, I was basically a business person. I had started a couple of businesses. Uh, That's what I knew how to do. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go work for a nonprofit. I didn't want to leave the business world. And And I had this idea which Ben Cohen had at Ben and Jerry's and Yvonne Chouinard had at Patagonia. That one powerful way to change the world is through business, is mm-hmm. by the way you treat your employees, by the products that you choose to sell, by the way you work in the community in which you live in. And having written my first book, How to Make the World a Better Place, a Beginner's Guide, I really had sort of compiled a list of all the ways in which one could do good. And then the goal was to apply as many of those to seventh generation as possible. And it was a journey. I mean, you know, this was back in 1979. There were a handful of those types of companies. Mm -hmm. Stonyfield Yogurt was another Stonyfield, that was the other one that came to mind for me. Tom's of Maine. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. these were the original socially responsible, sustainable brands that really had no idea what they were doing, but Mm -hmm. knew that by the business practices they pursued and followed, they had a chance at making a positive impact on the world. And we didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to measure it. And we did all kinds of crazy things. I mean, one of the things we believed in was, and this is so apropos of your show, One of the things we believed in is people should feel comfortable talking about their mistakes. And we actually, at our staff meeting every month, gave a $50 gift certificate to the person at the company who made the biggest mistake (laughs) that month. (laughs) I love it. That's amazing. Because we wanted people to talk about the mistakes and learn from the mistakes and not be embarrassed. And we didn't want to have more than one person make that same mistake. That was part of the culture of the company. And I was lucky Mm -hmm. enough to have a co-founder, Alan Newman, who started a company after he left Seventh Generation called Magic Hat Beer. And he was a co-conspirator with me in creating this kind of crazy culture that tried to embody the values that we wanted to have in the way we impacted the world very importantly, inside the company, because mm-hmm. you can't do it on the outside if you don't do it on the inside. Yeah, I love that counterintuitive, I'm sure. At the time, I think that's become a more common understanding that as leaders, like pursuing honesty and vulnerability and de-shaming failure and taking risks, which you're right, is the entire point of the show. But it's fun to hear some of those, but I'm sure it seemed a lot more radical back in the 70s to sit around a table and talk about your biggest mistakes and then get rewarded for it. Oh, people thought we were crazy. So, okay, so tell us about the journey. So you went from founding this company in the 70s, not really like, it sounds like kind of having this like idea and you were in this small group of 
kind of renegades who are thinking about how do we actually make the world a little bit better, whether that's through ice cream or deodorant or rock climbing equipment or cleaning supplies. Um, and tell us, give us like a brief uh, overview of that rocket ship kind of next 20 years that you were on with Seventh Generation. Well, it started off as a rocket ship. You know, the first year we did $100,000 of business, then we did a million, then we did $7 million. And we thought the fourth year we were going to do $20 million of business. Yeah. Reasonable assumption. Yeah. Didn't happen. Okay. All of a sudden, we didn't hit our numbers and ended up doing the same $7 million of business we did in the fourth year that we had done in the third year. Okay. And that was really catastrophic because we hired employees. We bought inventory. We had more toilet paper than you knew what to do with. Uh, and, uh, we all of a sudden stopped growing hmm. and that was largely because earth day had taken place during the year we grew from a million to 7 million. And all of a sudden after earth day, there wasn't the same focus on the environment. So we really had to figure out how to restart our business and get it growing again. And it took us several years to figure that out. And ultimately what we decided was, we wanted to get out of the mail order catalog business and sell our products in retail stores. And the turning point for us was Whole Foods. All mm -hmm. of a sudden, getting into Whole Foods was a huge turning point. All of a sudden, we were exposing our products to millions and millions of people who all of a sudden started to make the connection that these products were another way to keep yourself healthy. They weren't just about mm. the environment. They were products for a healthy home and a, and a healthy family, as well as a safer and more natural, less toxic environment. And that was the ultimate source of our growth. We, we grew mm. it at Whole Foods. We then got into Target. We got into other grocery stores. And all of a sudden, you know, from the year 2000 to 2010, we grew from about $10 million to $150 million in sales, all driven by this retail expansion. And it was helped by the focus on natural living and the focus on organic. And, you know, people started to realize that there really wasn't a point in eating carefully and organic and then filling your house with fumes that were toxic and were going to make you sick and trigger an allergy or an asthma attack or something worse. So we really were on to something important. And uh, it was, interestingly enough, very much about education. One of the mm. things that we learned is that people didn't understand these issues. They never read the back of the Tylex label to sort of see that there were some warning signs there because those labels said, uh, don't breathe in a place that's not well ventilated. Or they said, don't use this product if you have sensitive skin or you have a heart condition. Well, that should have tipped consumers off that there was something to be wary of inside the bottle. And we were the first company, very proudly so, that listed all of the ingredients on mm. the label so consumers could do their own research and figure it out for themselves. Uh, that was something that was just not done in the rest of the industry. For those few years where you were kind of like plateaued with your revenue, what were some of your key 
one, emotions that you had during that time? And two, what were some of the kind of key learnings? Was there a time during that that few years where you felt like you were just like banging your head up against the wall and couldn't like crack the nut? And like, how did you stay engaged throughout that season? How did you know that you should keep going? Yeah. So did a lot of banging my head against walls. No question about it. Uh, What kept me going was, I think, what's critical to most entrepreneurs is the passion for what I was doing and the belief that not only did I love it, but it was a way to make an important contribution to the world. And if I wasn't so passionate about the impact we were having on the planet, but also on families' lives and little children who were living more safely than they would have otherwise, I don't think I would have been able to keep going because it was tough. We went for for probably five years without really any significant growth. Mm. And you start to wonder, is the universe sending you a message? Is it time to move on and do something else? But I just couldn't give up. I I, I think that no one really goes out of business until they decide to give up. Mm. I could not give up. It was not in my DNA. And uh, luckily, uh, things turned around. But, you know, it was painful because when we didn't hit our sales projections, we had to let people go. I I was spending time renegotiating the copy or lease terms because we had to do everything we possibly could do to save money. We had to move into a smaller office. We had to do all kinds of things just to stay alive. And it's a very different energy when you're fighting for your survival than when you are growing and and prospering and flourishing. And to be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to live through both and succeed at both. Yeah. It I, it does make me wonder if, you know, had you not had that prior experience of knowing what it felt like to be running this company and to be building this business that if at the end of the day, you went home and you looked at yourself in the mirror and you were kind of like, uh, helping people marry rich or like meh, helping people get rid of their, what was it? Their accent. Their wrinkles, their accent, whatever they didn't like about themselves, we had a course to help them get rid of it. Totally. So you have this experience of going like, what am I doing and who am I? And like, why am I spending my life creating and putting a product out into the universe that I actually don't believe in? I wonder if having had that experience made you even more committed and maybe grateful to the experience that you had at Seventh Generation that actually enabled some of that longevity during that. Five years is not a short time to be really struggling through, I mean, not growing as a company or shrinking, you know, even worse as a company, like the downsizing and the firing and the layoffs, like it's very demoralizing. And I do wonder that had you not had this thing to compare it to of like, yeah, but this is what it feels like to go to bed at night and be like, what am I doing with my life? Versus like, this is really hard, but I also like deeply believe in the impact that we're making. If that actually was something that allowed you to stay in it for longer until the tide started to shift a little bit. I think that's true. You know, once you experience having a business, whether it's your own or working for someone else's, that really aligns with your passion and your purpose and gives you a deep sense of fulfillment. It's almost impossible to go back. You just can't 
go and do a job that you don't feel proud of and you don't feel like you're making a contribution. So I'm sure that was a, a factor. Yeah. I can't today imagine doing something I don't believe in. I mm-hmm. can't today imagine getting up and not feeling like I at least am trying to make the world a better place. Whether I'm succeeding or not today is a different story, but at least I'm working at something that I believe in. So, okay, so then you grew from 10 million to, I think you said 150 million in 10 years. So I imagine that that was just a rocket ship. It was probably very challenging, but also the good kind of challenge, you know, like fun and you're growing. Tell us a little bit about, um, there was a day where you received a phone call and and I'll let you tell the story about what that phone call was. But before you do, I want to know the day before that phone call came in, who were you? How would you have described your life at this point? Like, who was Jeffrey? How did you feel about yourself? How was like, how would you have explained your business and your role in the business and your world? Like, give us just a snapshot into 24 hours before that phone call. What did your life look like? Yeah. You know, we were broadly recognized at seventh generation as being an important, leading, innovative company. And we got a lot of media coverage and we we had tremendous appreciation from our customers about what we were doing. And I I was feeling pretty great about myself. I probably had a somewhat inflated ego from all the positive adulation I was getting. And uh, the phone call, while it shouldn't have been as much of a surprise as it was, was a phone call from the company's lawyer telling me to not return to the office because I was being fired from the company by the board of directors. And it was probably the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life because I I had this illusion that this was my company. I had helped start it with Alan Newman. Uh, I had been there for 20 years growing it. I had increased, I mean, you, you think about the financial impact the stock in 2000 was worth $1.75. By 2010, when I got fired, it was worth $22.50. So people wow. made a tremendous amount of money on the company as well. And I was like succeeding financially. I was succeeding from an environmental and a social perspective. But there was uh, something in the way I expressed my leadership that was very problematic for the board. Hmm. There were, you know, and I'll give you just a few examples. One of them, which is, I think, silly, but played into the equation was I was on the board of Greenpeace. And as a board member, I would do demonstrations with them and ended up voluntarily getting arrested. And the board was like, the CEO should not be getting arrested. This is not a CEO-like move (laughs) uh, of yours. But more important... There was a fundamental difference that I had between myself and the board about employee ownership. We had given 1% of the company to the employees every year for 20 years. They owned 20% of the company. And one of the things that I was the proudest of was that we had helped create value for our employees, not just Mm. for our shareholders. And my goal was to continue to do that. 
to keep pushing that up from 20 to 30 percent. Well, that was not something that my board was on board mm -hmm. with. Uh, it diluted their stock. It took away some of the value that they had. And, you know, from my perspective, there was more than enough for everyone to share, but not everybody sees the world like that. So there was a difference around the ownership and equity that we were giving to our employees. And also, we had hired someone to run the company on a day-to-day -day basis so that I could do more speaking and do more lecturing and write more books and be perhaps more of an influencer than just an operator. Turned out that the guy that we hired to run the business on a day-to-day -day basis wasn't so interested in all of the social things that I was interested in and was much more comfortable to the board. And now, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. they had a choice. They could choose him or they could choose me and they didn't choose me. And, uh, you know, did I contribute to my own demise? Absolutely. Did I push too hard and too fast? Absolutely. Was I sometimes not very tolerant of different perspectives? Of course. And so, you know, as painful as that was, and it was terrible. I mean, I think the headline of the Burlington Free Press is seventh generation CEO fired. And, you know, my kids had to go to school and all their friends said, what did your dad do? You know, did he steal money from the company? Yeah. It's a hard thing for children to understand. Very painful for them. Very painful for my wife. My wife was on the board of the company, but she so had to wait. Did she know? That they were having this conversation? No, they did it behind your back. <sighs> okay. Well, for you, I feel better about that. I mean, it, it's not great they went behind her back, but that would have been another layer. So she was she was completely shocked when that phone call came in too. She was sitting well. next to me and heard the news as I heard the news, but didn't give up her board seat because she was not willing to stop fighting for the things mm -hmm. that we believed in. And uh, they thought it would be just, I think she was the only woman on the board. And I think they were feeling that they couldn't fire both of us at the same time. So she stuck it out, toughed it out, did what she could do to keep the company on the right path. Okay. Well, I kind of love the teamwork of uh, dividing and conquering there. But tell me a little bit about like, you know, on this show, we kind of talk about the shame spiral. So something happens, you get rejected, you get hard news, you get bad feedback, whatever it is. In your case, you get fired from the company that you started. And, you know, it starts with like this bad thing is happening and it can often go to messages about who you are and your worth and your value and your, you know, persistent, perpetual problem. I'm curious about, did you shame Spiral? And if so, what was your specific Jeffrey Hollander brand of shame spiraling? What was the kind of message that you found yourself giving into um, that wasn't true kind of during those darkest moments where the world feels like it's falling apart around you? You know, it, it, it first... You just don't know what to do. You don't know how to make sense of it. You don't understand why it happened. You don't understand if you contributed to it happening. You're in, honestly, sort of a state of shock. Yeah. And that lasts for a while. Mm. And after a state of shock and, and withdrawing because didn't really want to see anyone, didn't really want to talk to anyone, I really wanted to withdraw. 
and just take care of myself, just sort of heal, meditate, read, sit on the beach, just take care of myself. And that honestly took months Mm -hmm. of just slowing down and trying to come to terms with what had happened. And I went out and talked about it quite a bit. I, after three months, did some speaking engagements, Mm. shared my story, learned from other people what they had been through, how they had handled it. And that was, uh, helped me process what was, was so painful to experience. And I, I think I probably took close to two years without really committing myself to any major work or business or anything mm. else. And I had, I had sort of burned myself out at the same time. Not yeah. that I was as aware of it as I should have been. And, uh, you know, as crazy as it seems, after two years, I said, there's work left to be done. I didn't accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish. I learned a lot. It's time to try again. And this time, Mm. with my family, started another business with my wife and my daughter, started another business that we controlled as a family. Mm. I figured my family wasn't going to fire me. That was the safest thing I could do. So we controlled the business and the ownership of the company and started a wonderful business called Sustain Natural uh, in 2013, where my daughter, Mika Hollander, still works and has now been sold to a company called Grove Collaborative. Oh, I didn't realize that Grove was the acquirer of that. They were the acquirer. And, you know, I I learned some lessons at Seventh Generation that I wanted to work into Sustain Natural. One of them is the difference between products that are less bad and products that are good. Mm, Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things we had to come to terms with at Seventh Generation is while we had better diapers and better paper towels and better toilet paper, our products took a toll on the environment. Hmm. They created garbage, they used energy, they created waste, they used water. And I said, is it possible to create products that are all good, are are what Hmm. we call net positive? And so one Hmm. of my aspirations coming out of seventh generation was to change what we think of as sustainable products so that they're regenerative rather Mm. than just sustainable. So that was a really important learning. And that was one of the aspirations that led us, of all things, at Sustain Natural to get into the condom business (laughs) because condoms are pretty good, important health friendly products. They are. And I can't be the first person that heard that you started a sexual health company with your wife and daughter who couldn't help but immediately go, oh my gosh, I can't imagine sitting at a boardroom table with my dad talking about condoms. There were certain subjects that were off limits at work, but but we we did pretty well. We did pretty well as a family. And uh, ultimately my daughter took over running the company and ended up uh, selling it after about five years. But I I learned something that was also equally important, which is it's wonderful to create these companies like Seventh Generation and Ben & Jerry's and Organic Valley that are exceptions to the rules. Hmm. But if you really want to change the world, you've got to change the rules. You've got to change the way all business gets done. And that's really what led me 
after uh, leaving Seventh Generation and Sustain to start the American Sustainable Business Council to work for new legislation to raise mm-hmm. the minimum wage. People can't continue to work for poverty wages to put a price on carbon so that we're discouraging carbon pollution and companies have to pay to do that, to make sure that everyone has access to family leave, to take time off when they have a child, both husband and wife or whatever the couple may be. Mm -hmm. And the American Sustainable Business Council, which has hundreds and hundreds of businesses like Seventh Generation and Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia as member, work in the legislature and with the Biden administration to promote this more progressive public policy that sets standards so that all businesses become responsible, sustainable businesses. And that's the only kind of business that gets done. I read something, and correct me if I'm misremembering this, about this season right after you were fired from Seventh Generation, where one, I think I read that it was your daughter that kind of was the one that said, hey, dad, maybe maybe there's silver lining here. Like maybe there's an opportunity that awaits you and that you started with just by letting yourself or forcing yourself probably is what it felt like during those early days to think about that for just like 15 minutes a day. And that that 15 minutes a day kind of then turned into maybe an hour and an hour turned into a few hours. But I really, really loved that approach. I think oftentimes, you know, when devastation hits or when our world turns upside down or when we, you know, have this massive rejection or setback or failure, we have this such this unrealistic idea that we should be able to wake up the next morning and like look at the silver lining and, you know, try to look for the opportunity. And there's something really powerful, I think, about giving ourselves the freedom to just take a tiny step and to just say like, hey, can for 15 minutes, can you think about what if in the midst of this rejection, failure, mistake, whatever it is, there's a little nugget of gold somewhere, an idea, an opportunity, a learning, um, whether, you know, that's even just personal growth, but giving yourself a little bit of a break of saying like, can you just do it for 15 minutes and creating that kind of momentum with those really small steps that really resonated with me. Yeah, I think that's so true and so important. The only correction I might make is I'm not sure I lasted 15 minutes in the beginning. It was probably more <laughs> like five. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you need to reflect. You need to really reflect on what the learning opportunity that has been given you is. And you got to be kind to yourself and you got to take time. So if you need to start with five minutes, start with five minutes or even one minute and uh, give yourself the time and space to slowly grow into and discover that next opportunity. Yeah, that's good. I just also read a study. It's not a brand new study, but it's like a social study that kind of talked about how humans, you know, behavioral science, how we tend to act during crisis. And we have this kind of common knowledge that we tend to fight to flight or to freeze. And that's what we do in the face of crisis. Well, turns out that we didn't study women in social science until the mid-1990s, which is wild to me, that just the entire science community said like, 
Mm, we're not going to study women. The The general theory at the time was that women's hormones make their any data we get from women is like too unreliable and useless. So we're just going to study men and then we're going to make a whole, you know, body of evidence that we're going to say applies to all humans. But it's really just based off of research that we did to men. So in the mid 90s, the U.S. government was like, hey, we should start including women in these, you know, psychological or social or behavioral studies. And one of the things that they found, specifically once they started studying more women, as an emerging trend, as a way to cope with crisis, was uh, what they ended up calling tend and befriend. Um, and that just like really struck me. And it kind of sounds like in your story, your first reaction was to isolate, was to say like, hey, I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm embarrassed. I want to like keep to myself. So probably, you know, like a flight of just like, I just want to go into my hole. But that after a couple months, you really emerged with, you know, you said you started talking to other people and not just sharing your story to like, you know, your best friend over a beer in the backyard, but like getting on stages and like sharing about your rejection relatively recently, you know, three months prior. And and it sounds like you found some real healing in the process of just de-shaming the like, hey, I'm going to get on stage and I'm going to share about what happened. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit more about kind of the freeing healing process that sounds like came from just like openly sharing your story versus kind of hiding in this like this kind of shame freeze. Well, what you realize is that your experience and the lessons that you're learning has real value for other people, has value in corporate governance to pay more attention to how to set up your company legally so that you might be able to minimize the likelihood of that happening. A lot of people don't realize that once they've sold 51% of their company to investors, they become an employee. They're working for the investors and the board, and it is no longer your company. So there were, were valuable lessons that I could share with other people about what I had gone through. And some of them were very personal. Some of them were being more patient, uh, mm -hmm. making sure that on this issue of employee ownership, I was doing a better job of bringing the board along with me. And I wasn't running too far ahead of the pack on my own because, you know, leadership is in some ways more about bringing everyone else along with you than it is being out in front of them. Yeah. And uh, we often forget that. We often think that the leader is in a class unto themselves rather than in many ways and most effectively almost standing behind everyone pushing and encouraging them to move forward rather than having people chase you. So it was a valuable process. And I found more people than I expected that had gone through something similar. I, I'm amazed, you know, at my class at NYU, when I talk about getting fired, people say to me, I have never in my life heard someone talk about being fired. They are usually so ashamed about getting yeah. fired that they don't talk about it. And they yep. were shocked that I would be open about something like that. And and I, I said, you know, there's so much more value in being open and sharing these experiences, no matter how painful they are, than holding them inside yourself. You can actually process better, I find, yep. by talking about them rather than trying to silently hide yourself away and figure out what to do next. 
Totally, because you're reinforcing that narrative that I know in my shame spiral I have that it's like, oh my gosh, but if people find out, if someone knew this, that I made this mistake or that I said this thing or that I didn't see this coming or whatever it was, and then it's like this spiral of like, then I wouldn't be loved, then I wouldn't belong, then I wouldn't be seen as worthy, that I wouldn't have influence, whatever it is. And if we stay silent, we just are confirming that. We're like, there's truth to this, so you better keep your mess to yourself and verse like bringing it into the light and how often that is met overwhelmingly with like, yeah, me too. (laughs) And you realize like, oh my gosh, one, there are other people out there that are also making mistakes that aren't perfect. And there's such freedom in being able to share that. And then also the only way to prove the shame monster wrong, right, is to test it and to say like, hey, I'm going to show up and I'm going to show up in authenticity and the power of seeing that actually be something that can build community and trust and uh, relationship and shared wisdom and movement forward, um, I think is the only way that we can really learn that it's like, oh, actually, like the monster is a lot less scary when we turn on the light. Yeah. And the story actually has a very happy ending, which is in 2016, when the company was sold to Unilever, one of the first things that Unilever did was invite me back onto the board of the company, which just totally blew me away. Wow. That that they wanted to give me the opportunity to continue to sort of help shepherd the future of the business Hmm. that I had started so many years ago and that they weren't scared of me Hmm. and they were, were willing to bring a pretty radical person back into the boardroom to participate in the future of seventh generation. And I'm lucky and proud that I had that opportunity and continue to have that opportunity. That's awesome. I mean, not every story is going to end with an epic comeback Cinderella tale of come back, <laughs> literally a comeback tale. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty neat when it does and, and we get to see that full circle. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much. This was such a delight. Um, I feel really inspired and encouraged. And um, I know that the way that you share your story and that you talk about the highs and the lows uh, will continue to have an impact even beyond the actual work that you've done that will extend far beyond that. So really grateful that you would uh, join us on this show and, and share your story with us. My pleasure, Liz. It's been a lot of fun and I hope it is of value to your listeners. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It will be. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank you. Well, I hope you all liked today's episode as much as I did. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Seriously, it helps us so much and we really do appreciate it. And I read every single one. Maybe I shouldn't do that, but I do. So sue me. This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For announcements about the show, go ahead and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Liz Bohannon and you can follow at Human Group Media. I really do love to connect with you all. So feel free, honestly, follow me, comment, shoot me a DM. Let's chit chat it up. But that's all for now, guys. We'll catch you again in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky. Stay plucky.